Hello, everyone. Welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Tonight, I have an amazing guest. He's a retired 22-year veteran of the NYPD. He worked in the 6-0 squad. He started out on the police department working for the transit police, and he worked his way up. Tonight, he's going to tell the story uh, that occurred in 1992 of a triple homicide that occurred in the, the Cary Gardens housing projects. Without further ado, I'm going to introduce to you guys now, Phil Grimaldi. Phil, how you doing? Pretty good, Bill. How are you? Great to see you. You're like a uh, a frequent flyer on this show. This is your second time uh, talking about a case. Also, for our fans out there, Phil and I, uh, it's got to be about five years ago now that we starred in an episode of The Perfect Murder on Investigation Discovery, and we were partners uh, reenacting a homicide case on that show. So, Phil, it's great to see you, and uh, I'm looking forward. Actually, I'm just like a fan, too. I'm looking forward to hear what you uh, hear about this case. I really appreciate that, Bill, and thank you for having me back. Um, I just wanted to say, not to be a kiss-ass or anything, I watched many of the episodes that you have put out, as well as the off-the-cuff off episodes, and uh, they're just getting better each episode. They're more interesting I mean, you know, they're they're not short, so they're a little bit of uh, time. And sometimes I'll turn it on, and I just I'm glued to it. I got to uh, I got to get the whole thing. The last couple of cases you did were really fantastic. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. You know, it's good like if you get in your car and you got a long drive, just throw it on the uh, on the radio. You know, you can yeah, listen to yeah. it too. Yeah, that that's that's a good idea to uh, to capture it too. But you don't um, get to see us handsome guys then. You know, you, wow. you just listen. Yeah. <laughs> I did my hair and everything. <laughs> but anyway, the, the, the show's doing really good. Lots of luck with it. Thank you for Thank having you, me. Thank you, man. Again. And as you said earlier, you and I met uh, on the set of The Perfect Murder where we played uh, detectives. Wasn't that much of acting involved since uh, we're both uh, veterans of the NYPD Detective Bureau. Well, I, I thought we were going to win an Academy Award for that show. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll tell you, it did get... Uh, some of the top viewership for uh, for Ricky's shows, uh, Rick Torelli from That's uh, true. Patrick Murray. Yeah, so. So you're going to tell us about this case. It occurred in 1992, right? Yes, correct. Um, I just want to indulge a little bit. I, I was in the 6-0 squad from 1989 to about uh, the late 90s, and uh, I had come on the job in 1982 I was a transit police officer for a short time until 1983, but I had gotten involved in a shootout right up the block from the 6A precinct in Coney Island. So some of the detectives that responded to that case uh, turned out, one of them in particular, Audie Williams, turned out to be my partner. He actually responded and handled uh, you know, the incurring investigation after the shootout that we were in. So in 1989, when I went there, there were all these, uh, you know, I was... Uh, eight years on the job, nine years on the job. And uh, there was these older, you know, detectives. Uh, my partner, Artie, was a Vietnam veteran, came on in 69. So he had much more time than me. And the homicide squad worked in the same office as us. So for me to break into that uh, genre of detectives wasn't that easy, but they kind of knew me from that that incident in 82. And I, I always uh, got along well with the older gentlemen and, and, and ladies in the police department because I like to listen and learn, you know. So uh, I had been there uh, by 1992. I'd been there about uh, three years already. So I had, you know, been exposed to quite a few uh, murder cases, other cases. And uh, 
I wouldn't say I was salty, but I, I, I kind of knew, you know, in what direction to go when we responded to a case. You know, Phil, in, in 1982, I believe the class you were in in the police academy was the biggest class they ever had. I believe it was a 3,000 man and woman class in 1982. Yes, and correct. The city was hopping back then, so they needed to hire a lot of cops. Yes, the, uh, the class NYPD was, I believe, about a little over 2,000. I was in a transit class, which was 500. Then there was a housing class, which was another 300. So in total, they had about 3,000. And that was the, the largest uh, police class uh, in that year. That, that was correct. Wow. Yeah, that was a big class. Did you go around the clock or was just the 8 to 4, 4 to 12? They, they did an 8 to 4 and 4 to 12. We actually, they converted. There was no room in the police academy. So Normally, the transit police at that time, when there were three different uh, police departments, they would have uh, the transit housing guys go to the NYPD Academy. But there was no room in the academy, such a large class. They took a school up in Harlem, 155th Street and 8th Avenue. It was like a public school that was closed. And they converted for us into the, you know, the police academy, basically. And we call it Harlem High because it was up in Harlem. And, uh, <laughs> guys that work, we refer to it as Harlem High. And, uh, you know, there were... No showers and there was no pool or anything like that, but but we managed to. They broke into our cars quite a few times and wow, stuff, yeah, it was stuff like that. They actually there was a crossover bridge that went from Manhattan into the Bronx that you could walk over, and we would muster up in the morning in the schoolyard. And they would throw rocks at us as we were mustering up in the. <laughs> by the time somebody would go after them, they'd run. They'd be in the Bronx, you know. So they actually had a station. Some uh, some of the instructors would go up there and uh, while well, we did our muster in the morning. And uh, they would keep an eye on us, you know. But uh, it was just always something up there. It was a crazy time in New York City. And, oh, uh, it sure was, man. You know. But you got, you know, you paid your dues back then. You really, you know, you learned the job. You learned from veterans. You learned from the old timers. You know, police work's the, one of the only kind of jobs where you actually have on-the-job training, you know. Absolutely. And, and I got to tell you, the, you know, people could talk about the police academy. I was out of the police academy about a month I got involved in that shooting I was just uh, referencing and it was like immediate instincts just kicked in and, and you just did things that you didn't even split second. You didn't have time to think. And thank God uh, all the people that I was involved with, uh, nobody got hurt. And uh, fortunately for us, we, we, you know, got the two guys and they were shot. One of them was shot, but uh, he didn't die. And, uh, but your instincts kick in, you know, so the police Academy training definitely, um, you know, a little bit of street smarts, a little bit of growing up in in Brooklyn and the police academy training, and it just all kicked in. And uh, we, you know, we got we got a fan in our live chat is he goes by the tag Joey Brooklyn. So I want to <laughs> shout out to Joey Brooklyn. Joey Brooklyn, what's Joey up? Joey Brooklyn, you're the man. Yo, yo, Jazzy Chaz, R D N A C. Uh who else we got here? Uh MC's audio, he's one of our biggest fans. Michelina Sera uh, Serino, K Jack Images. Um who else we got? Uh, Blondie, 1025, Edward Anthony, uh, Tim Acosta, Peter Pranzo's in. Uh, uh, Pete's our biggest fan, man. Yeah, I've heard that name before. He's the, he's the legendary 3-2 and street crime lieutenant and sergeant. Oh, okay. He actually was the only uh, lieutenant probably in the history of the NYPD in Manhattan in the 3-2 that had a hit put on by the, uh, by the mob because he was hurting their drug trade so bad. Oh, you, I'm glad you brought that up. You're going to have a very special guest next week. That's that right. Who had a hit put out on him. Tommy Dades. You, 
You're going to love Tommy. I'm sure you spoke to him already. Yeah, I've spoken to Tommy a bunch of times. Tommy and I are very, very close friends. I worked with Tommy uh, for a brief period in Intel, and then I also worked with him in the Bureau. Uh, great guy, super cop. There's, there's a, we only talk about a handful of super cops, and you've had, you had Mike Heinrichs I consider a super cop, and Tommy Dade's also a super cop, tremendous detective. He had... The, uh, the the mafia put a hit on him. They actually sat on his house and stuff. And uh, but he uh, he he got the guys that were involved in it. He tried to you know he tried to uh, uh, talk talk guys through it to to you know to lay off of his family. It didn't work out, and they wound up blocking up all the guys. You know? So they, they they had a sit down, but the sit down went bad. <laughs> well, yeah, basically, I guess you could say that they they he you know he tried to like you know do it the right way. But he'll tell you all about that. I don't want to infringe on his uh you know one of my old buddies uh from the three two squad is on the air eddie eddie uh eddie watkins eddie watkins is also a a karate expert and he went on another law enforcement uh job down south so he's got like two pensions so eddie's living large ed god bless you man thanks for showing up <laughs> yeah listen there's nothing like retirement uh after doing that time on the job you know they say there's life after the job there really is look what we're doing right now you know that's for sure, man. But look, hey, we're telling the stories, these great stories. Yeah. Let me get into the story. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I want to just uh, give oh, a little first, I got one question for you. Sure, sure. Uh, Sambuca and a snifter. How many coffee beans? <laughs> That's the average. If, if you didn't answer that right, you would have failed the Italian test. <laughs> Screen, right? I love that one. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. I asked that of I asked that of Chief Animoni. It was like three, of course. What do you mean? I was like, yeah, yeah, I love that. <laughs> I'm glad I got it right. <laughs> Believe it or not, when I do have an espresso, I don't like uh uh Zambuca. I like uh, I like Anazette. Oh, okay. So, so you don't have to worry, you don't put the coffee beans in there, right? Uh no, nah, just straight up. You know what is my grandfather when I was a kid, he uh he uh, drank anisette, and uh, he had an anisette sugar. So it was sugar and anisette mixed together. Uh-huh. Just trying to get rid of a phone call there. <laughs> All right, tell us the story. So basically, got I, the story. Here's what's going on. Um, 1992, June 18th, uh, Coney Island, uh, the 6-0 Precinct, Carrie Gardens Project, uh, uh, West 23rd Street. It was... Um, 2836 uh, West 23rd Street. It was a first floor apartment. Um, about 7.30 in the morning, 911 call into the police about uh, three people being dead inside of an apartment. By the time the squad arrived there, myself and all the other detectives, um, the crime scene had been secured. It was inside of an apartment on the first floor. I think it was apartment 1N. Um so there was obviously police tape. There was uh, uniform personnel assigned there. Crime scene had already been notified to get down there. And once I went inside the apartment, the apartment was in uh, terrible condition. There was no electricity in the apartment, terrible disarray, um, you know, garbage thrown about, clothing, things like that. But uh, the first, uh, when you went into the door, there was like a living room. And then the kitchen was off to the right. Yeah, I see you put up the Carry Gardens projects. That's a good. Uh, you see how uh, big of a complex it actually is. It's yeah, a, yeah. a huge. But yeah, for the, that's the first time I ever heard of a uh, homicide happening on the first floor. It's usually on the tenth and the elevators out. You know. Yeah, the tenth, the roof, <laughs> the, the compact room, things like that. But th this area, 
is known as Cary Garden. It's a three-building complex. The building that you just showed, there's three of those type buildings, two of them between Surf and uh, Mer uh, Surf and Mermaid, and then one between Surf, I'm, I'm sorry, between Mermaid and Neptune. Now, that whole area is a lot of housing projects, big, big buildings like that, probably 30 or 40, maybe 50 of them in that area. But the Cary Gardens, which was just one of them, and they they uh, they named it, and it uh, it had th that three-building complex loaded with drugs, a high crime area at that time in uh, 92. And uh, going back to the apartment, once I went inside, uh, complete disarray. And there was some, uh, there was a bedroom right off of the living room. And in that bedroom was a female black, uh, probably in her forties. Uh, she obviously DOA, uh, face up on the bed. Her hands were tied with some clothing. Uh, there was cord around, uh, her, her feet and an electrical cord from appliances that had been cut from different appliances in the apartment around her neck, as well as, a severe gash in her throat. And um, there was an article of clothing placed over the gash in her throat, which I'll go a little further with that later on in, in the uh, in the story. It, it turns out to be a very important piece of the whole, the whole uh, investigation. And then from there, in the, and she had uh, multiple stab wounds as well as the, the gaping wound in her throat. And the funny thing about it was in all of the, there were, there were three bodies, in all of the bodies, there wasn't a lot of blood which kind of told us that they may have been killed in their sleep because there was no signs of struggle. And you would think person stabbed numerous times in this big gaping wound, there would be a lot of blood. But on the contrary, there was, there was blood, obviously, but not a, uh, not a large amount of blood. And then as you went into the other uh, bedrooms of the apartment, there was a mattress on the floor with a young female, 12 years old, uh, on the bed, uh, you could see puncture wounds in her stomach. Her clothes, her her uh, t-shirt and bra had been pulled up, and her pajamas and panties had been pulled down. And she also had uh, electrical cords from different appliances uh, uh, tied around her hands and and feet. Um, and then in the and well, all the all the cords were from the apartment. They were cut electrical yeah. cords. Yes, and at this point, from going through the crime scene, you know, uh, we started to realize right away that it was a staged crime scene. You know, because there was uh, the the appliances were still in the apartment where the cords were cut, and the fact that it didn't look like there was a big struggle and there wasn't a lot of blood, we were starting to lean in the direction of that it was a staged crime scene. And then the third body with the, another female, 12 years old, um, was in the next apartment, uh, next bedroom, I'm sorry, next bedroom over, also on a mattress on the floor. And, you know, the, like I had said earlier, the apartment was completely in disarray. And the 40-year-old the female who lived in the apartment one of the children, the 12 year old was her daughter. And then the, uh, the third uh, victim was a uh, relative that lived also in the building, but lived in the upper floors. Um, and John DiCarlo, who was the detective from the homicide squad, he, he passed away a few years back, John, but a ter terrific detective, also a Vietnam veteran, uh, ex Navy SEAL. He happened to notice and point out that the fact that there was this large wound in the in the first victim's throat and there was an article of clothing placed over it so to hide it, it indicated to us from uh, our experience that possibly the, uh, the perpetrator was known to the victim. And when they were staging the crime scene, moving the body, 
that he didn't want to look at this. The person didn't want to look at this horrible wound in the throat. And if it's if it's a family member or a relative or a friend, it would make sense that this would be the case. Right. So uh, that was pointed out by John right away. Um, the other detective from uh, from the housing police, because it was three separate police departments back then, was Detective Peter McMahon. He was assigned from the housing police, as well as Sergeant Buddy Manane, who we spoke about uh, in other in other shows. Uh, he was present, and my partner Roddy Williams was present as well. And um, the uh, squad CO was uh, at the time Lieutenant Jimmy Luongo, who's now a chief on the NYPD currently today. And Jimmy Luongo is doing his walkout, right, uh, next week? Yes, yes it's uh, on the 16th of March. Is that, is that 40 years? Did he do 40 years? Uh, 79, so I think it's a little more than him. It's like four, almost 42. Oh, my he, God. Yeah, yeah. A terrific guy. And and we spoke how he uh, – I told him that I was uh, doing the, the podcast, the, the, the uh, off the cuff after hours with you. And he said, Oh, great guy. And I'm sure, you know, you had said the same thing about him, but really, really good guy. And he was our, he was our boss at the time. So he was present during the crime scene as well, you know? So, you know, Phil, you can only hope that when you do 42 years, you live long enough to enjoy that, uh, that huge pension you're going to have, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You want to enjoy that pension ferry every month. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm sure Jimmy will do well. He's got uh, he's got uh, two sons that are on the job and he's got another son that's a prosecutor in Manhattan DA's office. Wow. And his father actually worked in the 6-0 squad as a detective. I think he retired in like early 80s. But uh, so his family has a long history with the NYPD. You know, it's a cop family. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, but getting back to the case. So now. You know, I, I'm I'm not a rookie detective, but I'm fairly new with this stuff. And you're thrust into this case, and and in the onset, you know, it, it's looking like a bag of shit. You know, you got three dead bodies, a staged crime scene, and you know, not a lot happening from within the crime scene that's going to put us in the direction of a perpetrator. You know, right? Well, but things turned around pretty quickly uh, later on in the day. But uh, at that point, you know, it was kind of a bit of a head scratcher because like I said, the apartment had no electricity. Uh, the immediate canvas to neighbors uh, in and around the uh, first floor, we learned that uh, the, the 40 year old victim was a lifelong heroin addict and that she would have different people in and out of her apartment, uh, allowed him to shoot heroin. And uh, you know, they would give her a bag of dope. And uh, so right off the bat, we, we were, you know, we were dealing with a, uh, you know, a, basically a, a shooting gallery. You know, the crime scene was a shooting gallery. You know? But that also makes the case a little more difficult because it could be anybody then, you know? Yes, absolutely. And we actually had information right from the jump that the night before there was a guy that went into our apartment and there would be a lot of people in and out of this uh, location from what the neighbors had told us. And he apparently was upset that he had gotten a water shot from the victim and they became involved in a dispute that turned uh, physical and out into the hallway where, you know, they were like fisticuffs and, and then he went off and uh, you know, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't around, you know, he left the building. Yeah. So we were thinking at first that he might've been uh, the perpetrator. You know, we were definitely going to look for him. We had gotten a pretty decent description of him. We didn't have his name or anything, but then about, you know, uh, an hour or two into the crime scene, 
maybe a little more than that. Um, you know, crime scene had arrived and now we were walking through explaining uh, where all the bodies were. They were telling us what they wanted to do. We were letting them know what we wanted done. And uh, the person who called the police was the 40-year-old victim's son. He allegedly had come home uh, 7.30 in the morning and found the dead bodies, uh, exited out of the apartment and ran into his uncle down the block. And the two of them called the police. Once the police arrived, him being the person that found the bodies and called the police, he was asked to go into the precinct to give a statement. While he was out on the street, he was in the presence of a, a friend, another person, and he actually asked if his friend could come with him to the precinct. So to make him, you know, comfortable, uh, seeing as his mother and his uh, sister were found dead, as well as a cousin, uh, they said, yeah, sure. And they escorted them back to the precinct, waiting for us to come back to do an interview, which would be standard protocol to interview the person that found the, uh, you know, that called 911 and found the, uh, the dead bodies, you know. So while I was there a few hours in, I started at the time, no cell phones. I was carrying a beeper. I start getting beepers to the office, uh, 911, you know, call right away. So we had one of those. I don't know if you remember that, Bill. I think we spoke about it. The big phone, it was uh, portable. Yeah, you, you needed more codes to make that phone work. By the time you got the codes no, you, in, you didn't want to use it anymore. It was it was like a briefcase, and it was all battery, and then you'd have the handset. So I wind up getting through. I get the office, and they said, listen, you better get back to the office as soon as possible. The, the story with the son and his friend is not lining up. They apparently had told some lies. So we finished up the crime scene, and again, you know, uh, walking out of there, we didn't have a lot to go on other than this uh, this uh, male who had been engaged in an argument the day before. But as we were told by the people in the building, she argued with uh, people quite frequently. So we get back to the precinct and um, we, the friend was the one who had the inconsistent statement. The, the, the son's statement was, is that he had been out all night. He had gone to a party in Flatbush and his friend drove him back and uh, that uh, he came back to Coney Island at like 7.30 in the morning, and that's when he found the, the, the victim's uh, DOA. And, Phil, well, how, how old was the son at this point? I believe he was about 18 or 19 years old. Now, the friend had said that they had gone to um, the village in Manhattan, and they went to a party, and they took the train back, and that they walked from the train, which was probably about 10 or 15 blocks, and they walked back and they came to, to find the victims uh, together. So there was an inconsistency in the story. So relatively quickly, when we began to uh, interview the friend, we accused him of being involved in the murder. And he gave it up within a few minutes, probably. I would say within an hour, let's say, of, of talking to him. So he started to give up details about the murder that we knew only a person who was inside that crime scene would have known specific to the cutting of the cords and staging the bodies with the hands tied post-mortem. So we knew that we were on the right track. Now, once we got a really good statement out of him, a very detailed statement, we asked him if he would sign a confession, which he did. And we asked him if he was going to do a video, which he agreed to do. Now, before we contacted the, at the time we had the writing DA, we went in to speak to the son. When we started to interview him, his story uh, remained the same, that a friend had drove him back to Coney Island. 
So now one of the detectives got a hold of the friend by phone, asked him to come into the precinct. And when he came into the precinct, he was very absolutely positive and he was very believable that he never drove it. He did meet them, but they were in Manhattan and that he never came back to Coney Island and drove them. So we knew there was another inconsistency now in, in the, the son's story. So after a lot of questioning, he wasn't coming off that story. We took the second guy, the friend, and we brought him into the room and he said to him, tell them, cause I already tell them, tell them the truth. I already told them. We took him out of the room and then he began to confess. He started to give his details about what happened when they came back to Coney Island about how they walked uh, from the train. And they actually had discussed that if the mother gave him a hard time, that he was going to kill the mother. He told the friend, you know, the, the perpetrator was gay and his mother didn't like the idea of him being gay. I guess she had old fashioned values, but even though she was a heroin addict, she didn't, she didn't like the idea that he was gay and that he would bring uh, other friends of his that were gay to the house. So he discussed with, with this, his friend that if she gave a hard time that he was going to kill her. So, um, you know, we had no idea that these two individuals were gay from just talking to them. You know, they weren't flamboyant or anything like that. They just like look like ordinary kids, you know. So now the story started to develop a motive. He said he was going to kill his mother because he didn't like the idea uh, that she would give him she would give him shit about being gay. So that was starting to be uh, developed to be the motive. And then when it got to the point when he was inside the apartment and, and the killings actually took place, he pulled back and he said, no, I didn't do it. I'm innocent. Uh, you know, uh, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't go any further. So we went back to the friend the second time and we said, listen, we would like you to go into the room and convince your friend that you told us everything and that he should do the same thing. So we brought him in and he said, listen, man, you know, you, you got to tell the truth. I told him everything. So, you know, Phil, can I just uh, ask you something? Sure. Just all of these statements, all of these confessions are post Miranda. So they were read and they waived their rights. Just so a lot of people that are listening, yeah, they're you not know, in the police I business. That out. I should have pointed out. See, in the initial interview, when there was no Miranda warning, when they're saying, okay, you called the police, what happened? They started to tell the story. Now, they, they weren't together. So when the stories didn't match up, when I got back to the precinct, I asked the along with other detectives, but I asked the guy, the second, the friend to tell me the story. And when I saw that his story was inconsistent and we began, began to say, we believe that you're involved in it. That's when we read him his rights. He waived his rights and he began to tell us the story. Absolutely. A, a very good point that you brought out. Bill. Yeah. Cause I, a lot of folks may not know that that's one of the you know things you do as soon as they, as soon as the threshold of probable cause is reached, that's when the law says you have to read the Miranda. Now, I think the NYPD changed its policy. And when you go in to interview a, a suspect uh, who's who's under arrest, so you have to read the Miranda immediately. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, at that time, we had him sign the memo book, you know, that we read them their rights and they agreed to speak to the police. That's how we did it back then. But I'm sure that now the minute you're talking to somebody, they want you to read your rights and uh, so be it, you know. But at that time, uh, 
you know, initially they were brought to the precinct. They weren't brought in as suspects. They weren't handcuffed. They weren't arrested. They were asked to come to the precinct to give a statement, which is standard protocol. We always talk to the first officer, the person who called 911 or found the bodies. I mean, these are, the, you know, you interview EMS. These are the things that you do uh, standard in, in a murder investigation. So that was just part of it. And by by the them coming into the precinct and giving the stories and the stories didn't match up, that's what made us suspicious of them and started to focus on them as being possibly involved in it. Okay. So um, from from the point where the guys uh, the the main subject started to confess and then he recanted and then we brought the second guy in who had already give the gave a full confession. Uh, and we told him, convince him. So he said to him, we brought him into the room for the second time. He said, listen, man, you better tell them everything. I already told them everything. And, you know, we brought him out of the room. And at that point, he started to walk us through all the events that occurred. And basically what happened was the mother, who was, like I said, a lifelong heroin addict, she actually had sores on her arms and she was bandaged up from shooting heroin. And she would sleep in a chair. She was probably uh, 120 pounds or something to that effect. You know, she wasn't a big woman and uh, basically emaciated from all the drug use in her life. And uh, so when he went into the apartment, she would sleep in a chair in the, uh, in the first room, in the living room. And when she woke up, she saw that he wasn't alone and she made a remark to him about what are you bringing him in here for? And then she fell back asleep. She drifted off to sleep again. And he told the main, the main perpetrator told his friend, uh, hold her, I'm going to go get a knife. So he got behind her in the chair and he held her. And then the son went and got a knife out of the kitchen and he began to stab her. And then he slashed her throat from ear to ear. And, um, at this point, once she was dead, he told the friend, now we have to, we have to kill my sister because she's young and I can't raise her. So when they went into the back bedroom and they saw the sister, the, they, they killed her and then they found the cousin. They killed her too because they didn't want any witnesses to the crime and they, they wanted to make it look like a, uh, you know, like a, a one package murder that they killed everybody in the apartment. You know? did, you, did you ever find the, the knife, the murder weapon? The murder weapon was never recovered. They they told us that they went into the bay side of the ocean. Of course, Coney Island, obviously, it's an island. There's the ocean side and the bay side. But at that time, the bay side was filthy and littered with, uh, you know, abandoned cars, tires. They had thrown it into there, and we actually made a call into Harbor, and we asked them to search. And they said in that area, it is four or five feet of silt, and it would be extremely dangerous for any diver go into that water. So we never recovered the actual murder weapon. However, on the uh, direction of Sergeant Buddy Manane, we took two knives that were recovered in the apartment. They were very similar and appeared that uh, maybe the uh, murder weapon, uh, the, the, uh, the wounds were consistent with possibly a kitchen type steak knife. And we, re we vouched two that were found in the apartment to use as a compar comparison, but the actual murder weapon was never recovered. Never found it. I just want to shout out to some of our uh, live chatters. Cat in the Hat, uh, Duty Ron is on the air. He says, uh, Phil Grimaldi's a legend. I was like, wow, how does he know that? Blondie, <laughs> 1025. Candy Scarrett, cheated no more. Bill Ryan from Ryan Investigative Group. Oh, I know uh, Bill Ryan. 
you know Bill Ryan, right? Yeah. Joey Brooklyn, of course. Oscar Ferrafino, uh, another homicide sergeant from uh, – Oscar, you from the Bronx, I believe, right? And, of course, Richella Pranzo, RDNAC, Tim Acosta, Joan Guerrero, Peter Pranzo, of course, is here, Blondie 1025, uh, Aaron Rodriguez, uh, Detective Pat, a legend from the 2-3 squad is here, 30-year veteran Detective Pat, who's also a veteran of the Police Off the Cuff show. He's a, he's a fan favorite. They he was love- also on Perfect Murder, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he was also on the Perfect Murder. You're right. He, he, he gets around well. Detective Pat. Now he's a part-time cop up in Somers, among about 30 other jobs that he has. You know, God bless. He tries to go out to Montauk and tells people that he's a state liquor authority uh, beer tester. And then he tries four or five beers at the bar, doesn't pay, and says, all right, they're okay. <laughs> Pass the test. <laughs> I got to try that. I like that. I that's, like- that's, a, that's a good little scam, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Folks, thanks everyone in the live chat. Thank you for coming to the show. Thanks for uh, for listening. Penny Sue. Uh, here we have Phil Grimaldi, a retired NYPD 60 squad detective. He did 22 years on the job. Go ahead, Phil. Go back to your story. Sure. And I want to say thank you to the audience, too, because uh, it's very nice that they're uh, tuning in and listening and uh, they're interested in this type of stuff. But uh, getting back to the story. So he started to walk us through um, what happened when they first got into the apartment and they killed the mother. And then they went and they, they killed the two little girls. Um, and at that point... He, he said, listen, we have to make this look like a real murder. That's when they began to stage the crime scene and move the bodies around and take the clothing off and do all the things. I mean, there's some other details that I'm not going to get into uh, regarding the, the, the children and everything. But uh, so he, he walked us through all of that. And, and you know, it was obvious that the, uh, the ligatures that were around the hands they weren't very tight. You know, they, they cut like a toaster cord or a TV cord. And they, when they tied them, they didn't tie them very tight. So they were really, it was obvious that it was staged. It was done post-mortem, done after they were killed, you know? So now, now Phil, also some of our, um, some of our listeners, they can, the medical examiner can tell when a ligature was put on post-mortem because dead bodies don't bruise. So right. if someone puts a ligature on you and you're alive, that'll cause bruising. But if they put it on post-mortem, your body doesn't bruise. So that's how the medical examiner can tell that. And it's uh, one of those little pathological uh, tricks. Uh, I guess it's not a trick to a medical examiner, but that's how they would know whether or not it was like, as you say, a staged crime scene. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, all of these little things that, uh, we observe in crime scene and, you know, over the years, we, we, we basically we learn it, you know, from from previous cases and stuff. But when you go to these in-service trainings and you go to the homicide course or the criminal investigators course, uh, you know, you taught all of these things. And so we, we developed the uh, the theory that based on the uh, stage crime scene, like I had said, the, uh, the clothing that was placed over the, the mom's throat, the 40 year old woman's throat, that, uh, that it might've been known to her. And now it was making sense. The son was confessing to the murder now. So it all fell into place, you know, and, 
the thing I, I try to uh, state before, or, or I did state, was uh, there wasn't a lot of blood. So when we had them in the precinct, they didn't have any blood on them, you know. A lot of this, the uh, stab wounds were sunken chest, chest wounds, which they bled inside. But I think the fact that they were asleep when they were killed also had a lot to do with it, that they didn't bleed out. Uh, did, they, did they cut themselves at all? No. No, they didn't have any uh, any marks on their hands or anything like that. No, it was just uh, the main the person who did all the stabbing was the son. So the other guy basically was along for it, and you know he held uh, the mother when they killed her, and then he helped move the bodies and stuff like that when they uh, when they staged the crime scene. You know. Now, how about as far as you said there wasn't a lot of blood? How about even in the apartment, bloody footprints? Were there bloody footprints? Um. There were no bloody footprints because uh, when the when the uh, when the 40-year-old was killed, she was sitting in a chair. So the, she, like I said, she bled only a little bit and it went into the chair, and then she was moved to a bed. So there wasn't a whole lot of blood on the floor and stuff like that. And then to tell you the truth, the floor was covered with garbage, and there was a lot of a lot of crap around the apartment. Like I had said earlier, it was total disarray, no electricity, all of that. So I mean, obviously. We got lights and we looked to see if there were any bloody footprints, but there were none, you know. Right. And, okay. the, and the two girls were killed in the bed, so the uh, the blood basically stood. Uh, I don't think that they were moved around. Uh, the main subject, the the forty year old woman, was moved from the chair and she was placed across a bed. But uh, the two girls were killed in the bed. And they were just they just uh, took their clothing off to make it look like a, there was a, a sexual component to the murder. Uh, you know, they pulled up their uh, the shirts, the t-shirts and bras, and pulled down the panties and the, and the, and the pajamas. You know, the pants, whatever they were wearing. So to make it look like a sexual uh, and the uh, the sec the, the the main perpetrator's friend said that he said he wanted to make it look like a real crime scene. So he told they told us all this in their confessions. You know. Wow. Yeah. So. Um, and then uh, when we went back to the precinct and we had all the uh, we did all the confessions and everything, then we had the writing district attorney come. And by that time, you know, this all started at eight o'clock in the morning. By that time, it was midnight. And the first guy, the friend, uh, he made a confession uh, written and he signed it and he did a videotape confession as well. And then the, the main perpetrator. He only did the written confession, and by the time, like I said, it was 12 o'clock at night that the DA went on tape and said, listen, you know, read him his rights. Would you like to have a lawyer? And he said, yeah, I'd like a lawyer. And he was all ready to confess, but the minute he asked for a lawyer, that was it. There was no more no more interview. So, um, wow. And then as the case went to the grand jury, obviously, and then went to, you know, when they were going to be prosecuted, uh, the district attorney's office uh made a deal with the, the, the friend to testify against uh, the main perpetrator. So uh, who, who, the main perpetrator was the son of uh, yeah, the son. a 40 year old woman. And yeah. his, his sister was one of the 12 year olds and the other 12 year olds was his cousin. Yes. Yes, wow. absolutely. The, the main victim was Annie Yarber. I didn't mention their names. Um, and then the other two girls were Siobhan Bonds and Latasha Knox. And the, the main perpetrator was uh, Antonio Yarborough, and his friend was Sharif Wilson. I think you might even have a, uh, a photograph of the walkout. Yeah, this is uh, a very young Phil Grimaldi. 
Well, a lot, a lot darker hair. And, yeah, darker hair. And, uh, the guy on the left is my partner, Artie Williams. And okay. uh, obviously the middle guy is the perpetrator. The date on that is actually, uh, there was uh, some, uh, there was a, uh, uh, a court case recently where they sued us and stuff. And that's, they put up the wrong date. It was actually June of uh, 1992. Okay. But they're showing December. That was from Channel 7 News, I believe. So there was some litigation uh, in the last few years, and uh, that's what that was. And there's a picture of uh, Phil Grimaldi in his TV uh, debut on The Perfect Murder there. You look, you, look, you, look, you look pretty much the same in that one, right? Yeah, I think so. Not bad. Now, this obviously isn't the knife from the homicide, but it was probably a knife like this because you said it was a kitchen knife, correct? Yeah, it was. It was probably that. Looks like a rather large knife. This was these knives. What we surmised were more of a, a just a basic, you know, like in, in a regular kitchen set of uh, cutlery. There's uh, you serrated know, like uh, steak yeah, knives. Exactly, yeah. a serrated steak knife. That's the knives that we found. There were two of them. They matched, and we figured that the third was probably the uh, the murder weapon. But it had been thrown into the bay, so we never recovered it. You know. Now, did they did they change their clothes after their walk? Say when they did, uh, you surmise that they got rid of the murder weapon. Did you know, they change their clothes? I I don't think so. Uh, it never really came up. We looked in to see if they had any blood on their clothing or anything anything like that, and they didn't. So it's a possibility, but I don't. You know, the case is so long ago. I don't really remember. It's almost thirty years if they uh, if they actually changed their clothes. I don't believe so. I don't remember that, but. It was possible. You know, Phil, what a lot of people don't realize now when we talk about 1992, this 1992 was pre-DNA. Yes. I believe the first actual DNA hit in, in New York City where they linked cases together was 1997. Right. So there, you were like five years away from that, and that was the first one. So after that, and of course what sped up uh, the, the DNA technology was 9-11 because they learned a hell of a lot about DNA and matching DNA and doing, um, I think it's called the polymerase chain reaction where they can take a small amount of DNA and replicate it and then get matches. So the people we think we were thinking about 1992 and you just talked about the cell phone that was like a, a combat radio and they'd all show combat on TV, right? Right. Exactly. Uh, cell phones weren't a big thing. And, and the technology, even from the crime scene point of view, uh, DNA wasn't yet, uh, you know, being used because it, it was at least five years away for the till they had the first hit in New York City. Anyway, yeah. Well, at the time in '92, the DNA uh, that they were able to uh, identify, or basically, uh, they would be able to tell us that. If it was human blood, non-human blood, and I believe they'd be able to tell you if it was male or female. They couldn't really, unless you had a person to match it to, they really couldn't say, you know, 100% like they do today, uh, you know, or, or at great odds that this is the same person's blood, you know? Yeah, I remember that, you know, reading about the case the uh, of the, uh, the Ripper case in England, the one in 1972, I believe it was. They can only tell what type the blood was. Right. And like 50% of the population is O. Right. And then there's A and AB. And and, and so as, as far as scientifically, it didn't help you that much. 
Right. So no, it's O blood. Yeah, but 50% of the population, you didn't really narrow the field too much, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, the DNA came into play later on down the line. I'll get into that in a couple of minutes, but I just wanted to get back to uh, the prosecution part because the one guy, the friend, wound up, Sharif Wilson, wound up testifying. Uh, it, well, actually, he made a deal to testify. He went to the district attorney's office. He gave a full statement. He told him everything that happened. And then at the last minute, his his lawyer decided, you know what? We're going to trial. We're not going to uh, take the deal. They were going to shave a few years off of his sentence. So they went to, we went to trial on him. He was convicted. Then as soon as the trial was over, the district attorney went back to the defense attorney and said, listen, uh, we'll take some more years off his sentence. Now that he's, well, I, I think originally we we're going to take six years off his sentence when he would have cooperated before the trial. Now after they were going to take three years off his sentence. So he wound up testifying after he was convicted of the murders of the three murders against the main subject, which was the son, which was Antonio. And he wound up, he, believe it or not, he had a, a hung jury the first time. And then at the second trial, he was convicted. And they both went off to jail. And then in, I think it was 2013, um, Antonio had written letters to the Innocence Project. There was DNA collected, obviously. And they tested the DNA that was collected. And under the mother's fingernail, there was some DNA that was an unknown person. And that same DNA was at another homicide of a prostitute down in the 7-2. But it was like four years after the 1992 murder while they were in jail. So they took this piece of DNA and they got a 440 hearing, which allowed them to look at the, uh, the prosecution and the conviction. And the case was overturned in 2013 based on this, this piece of DNA. Now at the time, our contention was that was probably the guy she had to fight with the night before. She right. got his DNA under the fingernail. He was another heroin addict, and maybe he was involved in that prostitution murder. And, you know, the convictions were, as, as far as the district attorney's office was concerned, they said, they made a statement. They said, we didn't have any problem with the arrest. We didn't have any problem with the investigation or the prosecution and conviction. However, the standards of t DNA today, uh, we felt that there wouldn't be the same outcome if the case was tried again today. So they wound up overturning the conviction and they allowed both of these perpetrators out of jail. And there was a subsequent uh, lawsuit in about 2016, I believe it was. And they were both, uh, actually one of them, one, the, the friend passed away six months out of jail and they were both, his estate, they were both awarded a, about 16 and a half to 17 million dollars. Wow. Yeah, they, they used the word wrongful conviction. They used the word unlawful conviction. They try to they try to turn it on the police department, on myself and, and everyone involved in the case and say that we targeted them for, uh, you know, racism and gay bias and all these different things, which obviously weren't true. And, um, you know, the district attorney's office at the time, Thompson, he had just gotten, uh, he had beat Hines, who was the previous district attorney in Brooklyn. And he released them like a day or two before his inauguration. So there was a political component in there too, I'm sure. But he didn't, uh, he didn't throw us under the bus as, as what happened with Louis Scarcella, Detective Louis Scarcella, who had a bunch of his cases turned over, uh, overturned. And, uh, they really went to work on Louis and, and the, the media really, uh, 
attacked him. And, and, you know, they basically um, try to say that he framed all of those suspects that were released. I think there were about seven or eight cases. And, uh, you know, there was something that a detective by the name of Johnny Wild, who was a, a officer in the DEA said, and, you know, relating to uh, what's going on with Louie and all these overturned convictions, he says, you know, the detectives don't arrest the person and drive him up to Attica. There's a whole process that we go through. You know, there's the absolutely. It, yeah. You you were a supervisor in a homicide squad. Right. So there's the supervisors, there's the bosses in the job, there's the district attorney's office that in Brooklyn, you couldn't get a case approved for an arrest without the district attorney's office authorizing it. And I, I'm sure a lot of the other boroughs did that. I believe it's still that way today. But back in 92, we had to call the district attorney's office and we get a bureau chief from the homicide squad. And he would tell us, uh, what do you got? And we'd explain everything. The witnesses, they would respond to the precinct and they would interview people. And then they would say, okay, you can make the arrest. The only arrest that an NYPD police officer can't make without authorization from the district attorney's office is homicide. I mean, right. generally you can make an arrest. You know, you catch somebody shoplifting the store, you can make an arrest. You don't need the district attorney's office to tell you whether it's a good collar or not, you know. But, Phil, one of the things, like you explained in this case, was that years later they found DNA underneath the mother's fingernails. And you can explain that saying it seems to me that that was the the male that she had gotten in the fight with. However, that would have probably been used at the trial by the defense to create doubt yes. on who actually stabbed her. So that's probably the position that the district attorney's office is taking. You, you know, Bill, I'm glad you brought that up because some of the DNA samples that were recovered, there was touch DNA recovered from inside of the girl's pants or panties, I forget which, that matched the sun. And their contention, they didn't say this, uh, you know, publicly, but their contention was as well, he helped fold the laundry in the house. I mean, the house was total disorder. <laughs> there was no laundry. They didn't do their laundry in that house. <laughs> Whether they did it or not, it certainly wasn't folded. It was, you know, it was like a bomb went off in the house, you know. So, right. so there was, there was, you know, and the district attorney's office at the time, Thompson's office said that they were leaving the door open for a retrial but they never did. They never investigated. And as well as all these other cases, like with Scarcella's cases, they don't reinvestigate them. If you look at my case folder, you will come to the same conclusion based on everything that was in it, that these were the guys that were responsible for the murder, as well as in Louis's cases. And there was other cases, not only Louis, there was just a case recently, I believe up in the Bronx, where they had uh, the team from the Bronx Homicide Squad and one of the specific squads, they're looking at a bunch of their cases. And they're saying that, you know, they're saying uh, false confessions or coerced confessions. Um, they made a, a, a statement in the newspaper that the, the perpetrator didn't eat for two days. I, I'm not buying that because I'm, I'm just a human being. You know, you know Phil, I, I read that in the New York Times about that yeah. kid. And I said, first of all, that's absolute bullshit. Of course. No no one doesn't sleep for 48 hours. This is not Guantanamo Bay, you know. Sure. And every every boss on the police department makes sure that uh, defendants that are held in cells are fed. And not just once. If they're there that long, they're going to be fed every few hours. And being allowed to, you know, they're treated humanely, taken to the bathroom, you know, uh, they're allowed to get up every once in a while, stretch their legs, and we get you give them water, you give them stuff to drink. 
I mean, the, the, I read that New York Times article and said, oh, he, he hadn't slept for 48 hours or eaten in 48 hours. That's that, total that's nonsense. nonsense. I don't buy that. That's bullshit. First reason that I'll point out is if I'm going into the room to try and get a confession out of a person that was involved in a murder, the first thing I'm going to do is make him comfortable. Would you like a soda, a glass of water, a cigarette? You know, and I think I said this in the last time we were together on on this uh, on this show. Uh, you know, they always said in in service training, you know, give a guy a cigarette, he can put it out on your skin. It's five thousand degrees. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If the guy wants a cigarette, I'm going to give him a cigarette, and I'll worry about him coming at me with the cigarette. You know what I mean? And if a guy wants a glass of water or something to eat or a soda, or a lot of times we'd run down to the candy machine, get them candy or cake or soda or whatever, and you want to make them comfortable, I mean, it's just human nature. And listen, if we're going to have a conversation and I want you to give me some information, I'm not going to starve you to death and tell you you can't sleep, you know? So I, you know I something, Phil, I always said that, you know, people don't understand, like, that aren't in policing. The interview and interrogation process is one of trading wits and psychological, um, a game of psychological wits. There's nothing about, you're not going to be able to threaten a murderer and have him be like, oh, I'm so afraid of the detective. That doesn't happen. Right, right. And a lot of times it also helps if the person you're interviewing likes you. You know, sometimes the guy will tell you what you want to know just because he likes you. Absolutely. I, I think in one of your previous shows you were talking about that. The the right guy goes in the room, I mean the right detective, and he builds a rapport with the guy. You know, you want him to stay in there and keep at it. But there are times when... You know, you could have uh, a blue shirt on and the guy says, I don't like your blue shirt and you're not going to get anywhere with him or, you know, anything. It could be he thinks you're, uh, you know, you're you're a mean cop. You know, when you right. do a good cop, bad cop, he doesn't like you or something. And, and listen, in a lot of great cases, um, you know, the fact that there was a rapport between a detective or an investigator and the perpetrator or the subject uh, and things went in the way of, you know, getting a confession. Now, I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. As a New York City detective and any detective anywhere in the country, to me, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to agree with this, anybody that did specifically homicide investigation, when you're standing over a dead body like I was on that day, where it was actually three bodies, and you have no clue, no idea who did this horrible thing? I mean, these these two little girls were slaughtered in their sleep. I mean, it was terrible. And this other woman was was murdered, even though she was a heroin addict. She didn't deserve that, you know. And throat slashed ear to ear. Now you're standing over that dead body with a with a notebook in your hand, and basically, like we say, with your finger up your ass. It was a bag of shit case. And now hours later, and sometimes it's not hours later. It's not the same day. It could be months or even years later. You get the person responsible for that crime confessing there's nothing better for a detective to me that's like the highlight of detective work you know it's like it's like hitting a grand slam in the world series you know what i mean bill 100 percent. You yeah know. you know you you have a mystery you know i walked into a mystery that day i mean you know it was a real it was a dark no electricity a filthy apartment three dead bodies horribly murdered and no clue, not even, you know, just a little bit of a lead in the beginning, you know, that, that the guy she had to fight with, which turned out to not be it. But and then by the end of the day, we had a successful conclusion to the investigation with two solid confessions, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, something like you said before, uh, and as that detective or the uh, John, oh, John Wilde said, the detectives just don't 
pick the guy up and drive him upstate to Attica. Yeah, there's a whole process that has to go through. And the first thing, of course, is that explaining the case to the district attorney, who has to have enough evidence to a to approve the arrest and b to get an indictment, you know, with the grand jury. Sure. And granted, some people say, "Oh, you, a grand jury could invite a uh, could indict a ham sandwich." They, they used to say that, but it has to go on from there too. And to present the case, you know, at a trial, you you know, you, you need what's called evidence, you know, and it has to be done by the books, has to be done by the law, by police procedure, you know. And if someone's getting accused, uh, like that Detective Scorsella, I believe his name is, yes. of flaking someone, then. And I'm not saying he did, but the district attorney's office is just as responsible as he is. 100%. I'm so glad you brought that up because what they allege with Scott Seller and, and with myself too, but see, they didn't throw me under the bus and attack me personally like they did Scott Seller. The reason it happened with, Scholar is that, uh, with Scott Seller is Hines was running for re-election and there was already a, a, a scandal in his office. So they decided in the first case that they wound up overturning, throw the detective under the bus so that way you could still run for re-election and you're going to take the onus off yourself. That's basically what happened. Not Nobody came out and said that, but that's what happened. Now, it's actually impossible for one detective, like they've accused Scott Seller and his partner too, but mostly Scott Seller, to do all the things that they said that he did and you just pointed it out. When you make an arrest, right off the bat, there's the supervisors in the squad, the homicide squad, and the NYPD bosses. Then there's the district attorney's office that responds to most cases. When you're going to make an arrest, they respond to the scene sometimes on a homicide, and later they come back when you have witnesses or, or you have the perpetrator to take statements and stuff. So the district attorney's office is involved in it right from the beginning. And back then, as I said earlier, there was a bureau chief that we would go to him with information. We got this, we got that. We want to make a call and say, listen, go re-canvas that building. Go do this, go do that. And I want to tell you, there would be arguments about it. And every time the district attorney's office won, when they said they wanted a two-witness case, we would try to find the two, you know, second witness. And if we couldn't, we, we, we dealt with it further on down the line. But all of those things from there, it goes to grand jury, like you said, and maybe you can indict a ham sandwich, but from there, you have a defense attorney that starts looking at the case. You have the district attorney's office that's going to present the case. You have a judge. You have a jury. And at the end of the day, the judge oversees the case. The jury's found these people guilty. And at that time, in the, in the 90s or the 80s or whenever any of these cases took place, mine was 92, Scott Sellers were in the 80s, and, and I believe the most recent cases for Scott Seller in the 90s, but there was also um, a case in, in the Bronx, which was maybe 20 years ago. So you can look at those cases today and turn around and say, well, this wasn't done or that wasn't done, or we didn't have the ability to do those things. And you could say, let's overturn the case and you know, uh, give the let the guy out of jail and give him uh, $5 million. Doesn't mean he's not the perpetrator, but they say, well, it was an improper conviction. But, but you know something, Phil, it's... Uh it's probably almost impossible to take a case that occurred 20 years ago and to re-prosecute it because the witnesses are gone. The feeling psychologically of, of the witnesses and of the people stayed in New York is, oh, he already did 20 years. We're not going through this again. You know, so they're ready to fold, you know, hold up their hands and say, okay, you beat us. There was a case, and you probably remember this case, 
um, we called it the Brian Watkins moment. That was the kid that was in Manhattan with his family. They came here from Utah and they were going to the U.S. Open and his mother was robbed on the subway in Times Square. He came to her aid and was stabbed to death. One of the perpetrators who confessed 20 years later, all of a sudden they find witnesses and say, oh, he didn't do this. And now he's like a saint that had nothing to do with this case. And they're finding witnesses, exculpatory witnesses for him to say that, oh, he was up on the platform when this happened. He wasn't near this, you know. You, you know, Bill, doesn't that just make you a little bit suspicious of maybe there's there's some type of reason that these people are changing their stories? You know, at the end of the day, now, I'm not going to cast any aspersions on anybody, but it kind of makes sense. At the end of the day, if a guy's sitting in jail for 20 years and a witness changes his story and he gets out and he gets $10 million, maybe somebody's handing uh, the witness some money. You know, I mean. Potentially. It, it, yeah, it's, it's not. I, I don't know how a witness all of a sudden comes, changes the story after 20 years. How does that happen? You know, uh, in, in one of Scarcella's cases, recent, there were four witnesses and they were still all alive. And they still all said that the perpetrator who was in jail was the one that committed the murder. And they sent the district attorney's office tried to fight it and said, no, we think this is a good case. You know, there, there were other cases that they overturned the district attorney's office. So they didn't fight this one. They fought. They took it to the appellate court and the, and the appellate court said, no, no, no. Based on the fact, didn't look at the details of the case that there were four witnesses. No, no, no. The fact that Scarcella was involved in it, that alone is calls for uh, an overturning, a vacating of the conviction or an overturning of the conviction based on his past practices. Now, so they're saying now that he's unswearable now. Well, well, he did say, he did say in, in open court, I think he was on the Dr. Phil show years ago, and he said that he doesn't play by the rules but he stays within the boundaries of the law. Now, what he meant by that, and I'm sure you know it, if if I go into a room to do an interview, and all of his cases were based on, you know, uh, that he got the confession. Now, some of the cases were overturned. He was just present. He was in the room, or he was in the squad when they did a lineup, and his name went on a DD-5, and they overturned the case. So they, they really, really did the wrong thing with Louis, and they did the wrong thing with those cases. But getting back to what I was saying, um, you know, the the uh, the – I lost my train of thought, but the cases that they uh, that they overturned with him, uh, they could have easily been retried, and they didn't. And uh, you know they're giving paydays out to these attorneys and to these perpetrators, and I really think it's unfair and I think it's unjust. I think though, when you hear that, um, a lot of people, at least the public, hears that oh, this guy spent twenty years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. I mean. I would. I did police work for 27 years. I'm always very, very suspect of that. That all of a sudden, oh, he's exonerated. He totally didn't do it. Who realized this, you know? And then you see, of course, the Innocence Project is attached to it. They put, you know, 22 attorneys on it and had some people recant their testimony or whatever, you know? It's funny you brought that up because in 2016, uh, I was served with a lawsuit and I had to go to a deposition and it was uh, the Innocence Project, Barry Sheck's office was where they held it. And on the perpetrator's side, the two perps, they had seven attorneys. And I just had the city's attorney. 
And uh, yeah, you you had Jacoby and Myers. <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean, we, I had I had a, a city attorney. I had one gentleman. He was a pretty good guy. I mean, you know, he was pretty uh, he was pretty green. He was a new attorney and all. You know, I don't know how much time he had in the office in the corporation counsel's office, but it was a federal lawsuit. And uh, you know, they they rip into you and uh, they don't uh, they don't hold no punches. And you know. You're talking about millions of dollars. A law firm, my guys, on my case, they were awarded, um, like I said, almost $17 million. A third of that goes to the attorneys. You're talking millions of dollars, you know? Right. So it's good incentive to uh, to uncover, uh, you know, uh, newfound witnesses and, and they attack the credibility of the investigators, you know? And the thing is, is that you have to, even if though you're retired, you have to cooperate because- the city is defending you and a potential uh, lawsuit. Well, your name's on the lawsuit. Is there any potential that you could have to pay some of the damages? I'm so glad you brought that up because there's there's several things that most of us, whether active or retired, don't really know. You think, all right, I'm going to be indemnified by the city. I found out through this lawsuit that when they called me and they contacted me to come down, they weren't uh, representing me right off the bat. They wanted to hear my story first and what I knew about the case. And they went through the case folder. And then after, you know, like uh, uh, an interview with them for three hours, they slid a piece of paper across the desk to me and they said, okay, uh, sign this. I go, what's this? They go, that's the request for us to represent you in this lawsuit. I said, well, don't you have to? And they said, absolutely not. They said, if we didn't like what you told us, you told us something that we thought you, uh, you acted maliciously or with bad intent. You'd have to get your own attorney. That's number one. The second thing is I was named on a federal lawsuit and they told me, they said, uh, you know, casually, they said, by the way, are you in the process of buying any property or anything like that? Or are you going for a new mortgage? I was like, no, why? They said, well, you're named in a lawsuit. If they do a credit report on you, it's going to pop up and you may have difficulty getting a mortgage or being able to, you know, uh, purchase property. So that was another thing. And then I was told a third thing that, even though the city was going to indemnify me, they didn't think we did anything wrong, me or any of the detectives. If it was to go to trial, now it was settled out of court. And this is very important uh, that everybody that's in law enforcement should really hear this. The judge has the last say on what the city has to pay and what you could be responsible for. Now, what I mean by that is this. Let's say they give $10 million to the, the, the jury awards $10 million. They find uh, in in you know, they find for the plaintiff, they rule towards the plaintiff, that the plaintiff wins the case, and they say $10 million. The judge can say, all right, the New York City uh, is going to indemnify the police officer. However, during the trial, the officer said he did A, B, and C, which I think was reckless, and he can find you responsible for 5% or 10% of the lawsuit or whatever he wants. So you're really in a gray area there with indemnification, which I only found out I was retired 10 years when this whole thing broke, you know, and then I found out that now, thank God, thankfully, you know, we didn't do anything egregious or wrong, obviously. And, you know, it was settled out of court and uh, we didn't have to go that far. But, you know, uh, I think on your uh, on the Ahmed Sanguian case, uh, McTie had said that, you know, he brought up there's things that, you know, uh, guys who are in law enforcement that are on the job now should think about these type things because, you know, I got called out of retirement. I had to go there and, and uh, I had to go to the corporation council three different times to do trial prep. And then when I testified, I was in uh, Manhattan eight hours for the whole day. Uh, they had a video unit as well as a court stenographer. And like I said, I had seven attorneys 
asking questions, passing notes to the one guy that was asking me the questions who wasn't very nice. It was actually extremely rude, yelling and screaming for most of the deposition. And all I had was the city's one attorney, you know? I mean, he objected probably 150, 200 times, but what good was Yeah, You know, I, I remember we had spoke before this and you were telling me about what it was like to um, testify in this hearing and have this uh, attorney was screaming at you and yelling at you. And, and I think at some point you said to him, I still believe to this day these guys 100% did it. And then you told me the guy went off the wall nuts. Oh, yeah, right? no, that, there's two things I want to bring up about that. There's that when he said he said right out of the box, he said, you know, our contention is, is you did this and, you know, that we beat up the, the his clients and we got a confession out of them and we targeted them because they were gay and we targeted them because they were black. And he went through this whole litany of things. And I said, 100% not true. And I believe that you're to this day, your clients are 100% guilty. And the guy just went off. He stopped <laughs> from the mouth. Literally. I mean, he was yelling so bad that now where I was sitting, the, uh, the city's attorney was next to me and he was to my left and the court stenographer was also to my left. I actually had to put my hand in his face. And a couple of times I tell him, sir, you're screaming and yelling at me. If you're going to continue this, I'm not going to answer your questions. I'm here to cooperate. I'm here to answer your questions. I will fully answer every question you have. And I think this is a serious matter. Three people were slaughtered by your clients. And, <laughs> and I think that, you know, this is not a, a, a matter where you should be disrespectful towards me or to the attorney. And he turned around. And he said, tell your client not to put his hand in my face and, you know, all of that. And this went on. This went on for a good part of the day. And then finally, at, of course, it was between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. that we had this deposition. And at like 20 after five, the city attorney said, you know what? You've been rude to my client. You're yelling at him. We've had enough. If you continue in this manner, we're going to get up and walk out. And the attorney that was doing the question looked him dead in the eye and said, I dare you to walk out. I'll get the judge on the phone right now. I'll tell him you left the deposition. But, you know, all this. he said, well, listen, if you continue like that, that's what they're doing. And from that point forward, he was gentlemanly and polite for whatever reason, you know. But the other thing I wanted to bring out, during this deposition, I'm looking at all these other attorneys and they're passing notes and stuff. And they were basically saying that we forced this kid to confess to the murder of his mother. And I, I just couldn't, I couldn't swallow that, you know, and that we forced the two of them to confess to this. And I said, are you going to sit there and tell me that you, and I pointed to him that you would confess under any circumstances to the murder of your mother and, and, say that you stabbed her and slashed her throat and killed your sister and another 12-year-old girl. I don't think anybody in this room would do that if they were starved and they didn't sleep. Right. And not one of them answered me. They just all put their heads down, and he just continued on with the questioning. Because I don't care if you didn't sleep for two days. If somebody's accusing you of killing your mother and you didn't do it, I don't care if you didn't sleep for a week. You're not going to admit it. I'm sorry. You're just not going to do it, you know? A hundred percent. Duty, Ron, thank you so much for the $10 super chat. Jeffrey Brzezinski, hello. Huda Ali, uh, nice to see you here. Cat in the Hat, Moonlight View, all these live chatters, everyone. Jo Josh, Josh is here. Uh, MC's Audio, big fan. Shannon Bennett, uh, Cheated No More. I love all these tag names. They're great. Uh I'm going back and back. Uh, Joey Brooklyn's still here. Shannon Bennett. Duty Ron, of course. Thank you so much. MC's Audio. 
Brooklyn tough. Brooklyn tough. Brooklyn tough. Oh, look at that, man. They're all they're all all the Brooklyn people are here. You know. Yeah, this is a this is a fascinating uh, case, and I think we're seeing more and more of this. Uh, these what they call uh, reverse con- convictions, or you know, this guy was in prison for twenty years, and all of a sudden he didn't do it. Uh, and like the DNA, I mean, DNA on you know, if it's in a rape case, it's a you know, it's a really big, huge piece of evidence. In this case. Based on where it was found, and based on some of the the evidence before it, if she was sleeping, she was stabbed. She really had no chance to fight off the perpetrator, and the DNA underneath her fingernails was there from a previous. Uh, allegedly, was there from a previous event. Correct. That's what we believed. That's what we felt when this new DNA surfaced, and uh, the detective who was on the case with me from the housing police, Major K Squad, Pete McMahon. He was actually called by the district attorney's office when they were looking at the case to possibly overturn it. And he went through it. And I actually, Pete contacted me and I actually said, have them call me. I'll, you know, I'll tell them everything I know. I remember a lot about the case. I mean, let's face it. How often do you get a triple homicide? And it was, it was such an egregious case. And we felt that, you know, it came to a, 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 you know, it was concluded rather quickly and we felt that we had the right people involved. So I was ready to talk to them. And, you know, some time had passed a couple of months and I ran into Pete again. I said, did you give them my number? He said, yeah, I did. He said, but I'll, I'll call them. Yeah. I said, I never heard from them, you know? So two or three times this went on and right before they released him from jail, I got a hold of Pete because he had told me they're going to be letting him out of jail in a couple of days. And he called uh, back to the district attorney's office and they said, listen, we reviewed the case we don't think there's anything that Phil Grimaldi could add to this case, even though I was the assigned detective. So, you know, it's, it is what it is basically. And uh, they released him from jail, you know, and um, you know, it's, it's the thing that bothered me the most was this, when they, when they first released him, you know, naturally your integrity is called into question. And, you know, uh, I was retired 10 years, like I said, and I was having trouble with it. Like, how could they let these guys out of jail? You know, there came a point I actually second guessed myself for a second and said, well, maybe. And then when I looked at everything and I said, no, no, these are the guys, you know. But the thing that bothered me the most is that there were two 12-year-old kids asleep, as well as the 40-year-old woman, but two babies, basically. They were slaughtered. And these guys got out of jail and were given almost $17 million. I mean, it's horrible. It's just horrible, you know. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Aaron Rodriguez, thank you so much for the 1999 Super Chat. You're the man. I appreciate it, buddy. Thank you so much. And, Phil, I think uh, someone was here who's related to you. I just saw that. Frank Whalen. Uh, No, not Frank Whalen. Nick Nick Grimm. Nick Grimm. Is he your cousin? That's my brother. Your brother. Phil's brother, Nick. Does he look just like you? Uh, Yeah, kind of. Yeah. We get get, – it's obvious we're brothers. Well, Nick wasn't on the job, was he? No, no, he wasn't. He's much taller than me. He's like six two. He's a big guy. But oh, okay, cool. He the shit out of me when we were living. <laughs> That's great. Does anyone from the live chat have any uh, questions uh, for Phil? Cheated no more. Thank you so much for the five dollar super chat. Really appreciate it. No one has any questions for Phil. You can even ask him about the sambuca if you want. How many beans in a sambuca? <laughs> I like that, Billy. I, I, really, uh, really. I should. I, I should have asked uh, Lieutenant Pranzo that. I know he'd know that answer. You know. Yeah. Huda Ali, thank you so much for the ten pound super chat. Appreciate it. 
You know, you you said something also, Phil, about these um, testifying in these cases. And just, I mean, the stress of it, being off the job for 10 years and getting called back into the into the mix, it's almost like you're saying, wow, I'm off this job. I still got to respond to this, you know? Yeah, you know, you really don't have a choice because they uh, they were given three and a half or three point four million dollars a piece from the attorney general's office uh, when they were first released. The attorney general, his name escapes me. It was before uh, uh, Letitia James. Uh, he, he had actually had to step down. He had like a sex scandal, but he gave them. They served the lawsuit on the state because there's there's two different lawsuits when when somebody's uh, held in jail like this for a long time and they say it's a wrongful conviction they sue who whoever prosecuted as well as the police department but they sued the state too and the state has a fund so he took three million three point four million dollars and gave it to them so they used that money to hire all these attorneys they had the video unit when we did the deposition and everything and they hired investigators I was you know I had investigators in my neighborhood you know trying to follow me and stuff and. But they, when they served us with the lawsuit, they got myself and everybody else involved, and they even got a guy down in Florida, all at the same time between 6.30 and 7 p.m. on a Friday night. So they really went out of their way to coordinate that, to serve us all at once. And it was to rattle us. You know, right. It was done to rattle. And when I was called in to testify, it was a few days before Christmas. I was actually uh, going to testify on December 20th. And I said, you know, I might have plans when they were, when, you know, in the days leading up. And they said, well, if he doesn't come on the 20th, we'll take him on the uh, the Friday before it was because it was a Monday, you know. So I wound up going on the 20th and it was done intentionally right before Christmas just to try and rattle me. But me, myself, as, a, you know, a retired detective and I still feel like I'm a detective. It's in my blood. I'll always be a cop. And when this whole thing happened and I saw that I was going to have to testify, I went to the to the corporation counsel's office, like I said, on three different occasions, spent a few hours each time, kind of, you know, caught up on, on the case folder and stuff. And I was ready for them. You know, I, I also was afforded the opportunity for my uh, my partner testified and, you know, he went first. So. Now, I, I wasn't allowed to discuss with him the case of what transpired, but the corporation counsel attorney didn't tell me what they asked him, but he kind of gave me an idea of where they were going to be going. They're going to ask you this. He didn't tell me that's what they asked Artie, but, you know, I kind of got an idea. Right. So I, I was prepared for it. You know what I mean? I was I went in there strong, and when they tried to knock me down and say, you know, you hit my clients, you forced a confession at them, this and that, I hit right back and said, no, your clients are guilty. They slaughtered three people. You know, I kept going back with that. Right, right. And, and there, there was a few different things, you know, um, a few different things. But I got to tell you, now, before the deposition, in between the time that they were released from jail, and then it was probably about six months later, in, you know, the deposition was a couple of years after they were released. I'm in the gym one day, and I see, you know, they had the TVs on, but you don't hear the sound. And I see, like, Channel 7 News, and I see uh, – you know, uh, wrongfully convicted, blah, 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 blah. and I see the girl's name, and it was Sharif Wilson's sister, and she's there, and I'm reading, you know, they got the the, 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 the captioning, the closed captioning, I'm reading, yeah, the detectives, they went after my brother because he was gay, they beat, beat a confession out of my brother, they targeted him because he was black, and I got to tell you, I became friends with Louis Scarcella because of the overturned conviction, because it had happened to him and it happened to me and somebody put us together and we were talking. 
And I got a knot in my stomach that day. Now, they didn't mention me by name, but when they said the detectives did A, B, and C, right. there's a knot in my stomach. And I said, now I have one half of 1% what Louie's going through, that they had him on the front page of the paper hundreds of times calling him a disgraced detective, rogue detective, all of these things, which were completely untrue and actually quite impossible for him to have done. And we went through that earlier with all the steps and all the checks and balances. So it, they, they really did the job on him. I, I you know, I, I, I sympathize with Louie and, uh, you know, it's just uh, unfortunate what happened. But now it's going, the, the onus is, seems to be off of him. And now it's on these guys up in the Bronx and it's going to go somewhere else. It became the new slip and fall for these attorneys because- yeah. You get a guy out of jail that did any substantial amount of time. This is another thing that the corporation counsel told me. They have a formula. When they're going to settle a case as opposed to go to trial, for every year that the perpetrator has been in jail, they'll award, they'll agree to 250000 or less per year. So if the guy did 10 years, that's $2.5 million. And if they get $2 million, it's like a win for them. Oh, we only spent $2 million on this case. But a lot of times it'll go way above that. It'll go seven, eight, ten. On on my case, the city gave $13 million to each of the uh perpetrators. Maybe it was 13, I think it was 13 and a half, 13.5 million dollars. Wow. And the state gave 3.4 million to each one of them. I can't think of that guy's name, the uh former uh attorney. Elliot, Elliot Spitzer. No, it was after Spitzer. Spitzer oh, was he was client number nine or whatever, but uh, <laughs> well, after him, uh, I can't think of the guy's name. I wish somebody on the Facebook live would. would uh, uh, Moonlight View, thank you for the five dollars super chat, and Duty Ron again, thank you for the ten dollars super chat. You guys have been so amazing. Huda Ali, you asked the question, uh, was wondering if forensic uh, evidence was as good in 1992 as it is now. Well, DNA wasn't really uh, uh, at the forefront back then. And uh, in, in this case, the forensic evidence didn't really come into play as much because they didn't recover the murder weapon, nor did they recover the clothing uh, on the perpetrators. So um, I don't know forensically what they actually recovered in this case. Well, you know, naturally in those days, like you said, the DNA wasn't up to the standards in the par of today where you could take a, a, a touch DNA or actual droplet of blood and, and you get a, a direct hit and stuff. They put it in a database and it'll pop on anybody that's in there. But, it, you know, in, in that specific crime scene, they were looking for fingerprints. Obviously, if there was blood from someone else there, even though they couldn't really uh, type it back then, and, you know, uh, if there was a murder weapon recovered, which there wasn't, that would have been the things that crime scene would have been looking for back then, you know? Of course. You know, Phil, we're actually uh, an hour and 22 minutes into this, and uh, I think we better start wrapping it up. Yeah. I mean, this is a fascinating story. Yes. Oh, uh, Bob Guy said Eric Schneiderman. Was it Schneiderman? Schneiderman. That's the guy. Schneiderman, he was trying, you know, he was setting himself up for some other political office, probably governor at the time. Right. He jumped in and says, oh, I'm going to right the wrong of these poor individuals. And he you know, gave out, they said it was one of the quickest settlements of a lawsuit in New York City, New York State history. I think wow. it was like 90 days well, before he had settled. Barely read the thing and he handed them 3.4 apiece, you know, but whatever, that's uh, that's politics for you. Phil, well, uh, one last question. Someone sure. wants to know, where do you get your haircut? Uh, <laughs> listen, 
I use a lot of gel. That's all. <laughs> you know, Phil, you you were so good on this show that Duty Ron, right on the live chat, wants to wants you to come on his show. Anytime, I, I'd be I'd be uh, a pleasure to do it. It'd be a pleasure. He's, he's excellent. He's a, he's a great guest. He's a great. Uh, well, you can see why he's a great detective. He, he knows how to articulate all the things that he did, all the things that he believes in. He's he's just a. Hey, you didn't even use any lot. You didn't use a lot of Italian hand movement either. You know. Actually, I'm sitting on my hands. <laughs> that's great. The three beans up. Uh, yeah, that's right. You had the three beans in the sambuca, yeah. folks. Uh, this was a fascinating case. Uh, this is the second time uh, Phil Grimaldi's been on Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. He's, he's a great detective, gr good, great friend. We actually did a TV show together. We're hoping maybe to get another TV show one of these days if uh, the Perfect Murder crew ever comes back, right? Yeah. But, we got to uh, get with Ricky and Kevin. They're, uh, I'm sure they're working on something, you know? So. I hope so. So, yeah. uh, Phil, you have any anything you want to plug? Any last words before we say goodbye? Honestly, I'd like to plug this show and your other show off the cuff. I find them very entertaining. Like I said before, I learned some things here about uh, when you had O'Keefe on uh, from uh, Washington Heights about the difference between the gasoline and the alcohol-based accelerants. I thought that that was pretty cool. And uh, listen, you know, it's uh, you're going to have Tommy on, Tommy Dades. Uh, Tommy Dades, the ninth Tuesday, the ninth. He's he's yeah. fantastic. I'm so looking forward to that. Organized crime expert, as they say. I always compared uh, Buddy Manane to a walking computer with the housing projects, and he uh -huh. really was. And just all around, he was a great. Uh, he was like a computer. Tommy's the same way with uh, organized crime. You're gonna you're gonna be fascinated by him. And his partner in crime, as they say, was a bureau chief from the Brooklyn DA's office. I'd be remiss not to mention him. Joe Ponzi, who's a one of one of my closest friends, my dearest friends. I'm distantly distantly related to Joe, and him and Tommy did some great things together. I'm going to let Tommy tell you all about it. Joe Ponzi from the Brooklyn DA's office. Tommy Dades, look out for that show. You're going to love it. Joe, <laughs> Phil, you're the best. Phil Grimaldi. I'm Bill Cannon for Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories, and we're going to be signing off. Thanks for watching.